Hey guys, and welcome back to this week's episode of Brown Girl White Coat. This is Sai, like a sigh of relief, and I'm your podcast host. I am a second year medical student at Baylor College of Medicine here in the great Houston, Texas. I guess the Astros are pretty important lately, <laughs> um, but I thought I would go ahead and introduce myself because there are new listeners every time and I want to make sure, you know, just in case you start on this episode, you know who I am. I am detailing my entire medical school journey and beyond on this podcast. And I'm super happy that you guys have been following along with me throughout the whole journey. And I'm super, super excited to present this week's guest, Dr. Dara Cass, who is the ultimate podcast guest, I think, specifically for Brown Girl White Coat. And so a little bit about Dr. Cass. She's the founder of Fem and EM or Feminem. She is an emergency med physician and an advocate for women, essentially, an advocate for the advancement of women in the field of medicine, but more specifically the field of emergency medicine. She was previously the director of undergraduate medical education at NYU, and now she's an assistant clinical professor of emergency med at Columbia University Medical Center in NYC. She's also the director for equity and inclusion for the emergency department. So she created this organization called Femin EM or Feminem to uplift women, to champion women, to give a microphone to the voices of women everywhere and more specifically in the field of medicine. So she currently lives in Brooklyn, New York, so we're doing this remotely, but you'll just get to hear all of her her passion and her drive for doing what she does. She's a doctor, sure, but she's doing so much more on the side Um, She's involved heavily in politics, which she will definitely talk about, and we'll figure out why she does what she does and why she's so passionate about it, Um, creating this professional, you know, development and resources for women in medicine. I think it's very close and near and dear to my heart. You know, I'm doing it at a smaller scale. I'm doing it with people that are earlier on in their journeys, but essentially I'm just fangirling over Dr. Cass. So uh, without further ado, I will let this lead into our interview. All right. Hey, guys. I'm sitting here today with Dr. Dara Cass, EM physician, founder of Fem and EM, and overall badass woman. So thank you so much for joining me here today. Obviously, thank you for having me. So we have an awesome episode planned. We're going to touch on everything from feminism and healthcare, which is my favorite thing to talk about, and the upcoming presidential election, possibly. And we're going to start with some segments that I do here on the podcast. Um, and the first one is called Setting the Record Straight. So I'm going to give you a set of statements and you can tell me whether you think it's true or false, just according to your opinion. Okay. You ready? (laughs) I love giving my opinion. This is the best way to make me your new best friend. Go for it. Yes. Okay. So number one, physicians should have a social media presence. Yes. True. True. Would you care to explain? I think that, yes. I mean, I, this is something that I feel very strongly about. Um, I think that physician voices are critical to the next the next generation of truth tellers. I think that historically we were told that physicians should be only doctors, practice their medicine, and honestly, it perpetuated a very white male patriarchy because those are the voices of power. And I think if we're trying to disrupt the patriarchy uh, in a way that is productive and in all fairness, more equitable and inclusive, social media really helps us do that. I think that Physicians have a voice that's critically important, especially in this landscape, uh, regarding the intersection of all issues facing humans, whether it is access to healthcare, whether it's access to reproductive care, whether it's, you know, climate change and its effects on lives, whether it's, you know, um, you know, systemic racism as it's manifested in environmental policies. Like there are so many things that physicians see and are like the bellwether, you know, voice of reason for that. Yes, yes, yes. Physicians should have a social media voice. 
Okay. And follow up with that. What do you think about medical students in that field? Is it the same thing or does that MD make a difference? No, it's not the, med it's not the MD thing, actually. It's the hierarchy thing. So there okay. does become a uh, place for social media activism, I should say, uh, when it comes to um, realizing that if there's somebody judging you in a authoritative capacity, and I mean that specifically around getting the next job or residency spot, there is a reasonable uh, context by which your activism needs to be productive and, um, and, and reflective of that. So I tell a lot of medical students, uh, it's not really about activism on policy issues as much as it is about not really understanding the line between um, patient privacy, clinical reflections, and an outward facing pers like persona. So totally. the issue comes in when medical students want to reflect on, let's say that there is, I, I'm an emergency medicine doctor, obviously. So if I think about care in the emergency department and I'm talking about a case I had where I felt that somebody was being aggrieved by a, system, a systemic issue that I wanted to address. If I'm overly specific on that patient care issue, I could get into trouble. Same thing with tweeting pictures, right? So when we did yeah. This Is Our Lane and there was a lot of conversation around the gun violence you know, epidemic in America, the pictures that were used were very intentionally not patient identifiable. Right. The less experienced you are both in social media and in medicine and for medical students, that's a combination of both. Uh, you don't always recognize those flags before you do something. And what I would never want is for the promotion of activism in a public sphere to have a backlash to a medical student for doing what they think is right. When, when our time and experience has showed us the, the right barriers to put up to still be successful, but not get ourselves into too much trouble. Yeah, completely makes sense. That was a wonderful way to put it. <laughs> okay, let's go on to number two. So healthcare for all is achievable. Yes. Okay. Do you care to explain about that a little bit more? <laughs> you got you to give me my space and tell me how wonky <laughs> I'm allowed to get. So I, I fundamentally believe that we can get to healthcare access for all Americans very soon. I just don't think we can do it by going to a, straight to a universal healthcare program. And there are a lot of really, really fundamental reasons why. It has to do with the structure of our government. It has to do with the biases people have against underprivileged Americans or people that are undocumented. It has to do with the biases against women and people of color. Um, our federal programs have historically oppress people who are minorities. And mm -hmm. if we look to our healthcare system as a federal program without solving those oppressions first, we are going to be in a lot of trouble. So I think getting healthcare access to all Americans under a federal program that is written intentionally without expecting it to be the catch-all for the programs that people already have access to is a much more deliberate way to do it. So I think that everyone has their candidate in this race and I have mine. Um, yeah. And the way he phrases it is Medicare for all who want it. But it really comes to a robust public option that is created to capture the patients um, and also built in a way that is that makes it incentivized for people who have access to private insurance to come over, right? I, for some, would love to choose a public option that got me the healthcare I, that I needed, um, not just because I want to contribute to that pool, but also because I think it's a good example for other people to say the private option isn't always going to be the best, but yeah. that, that only happens after I can see it, right? So we have to build it first and we have to prove that it's going to work. And the, the most vulnerable care I'm talking about right now is women's health care, right? So if we don't solve the access to women's health care under a federal program before we mandate everybody to go over, we yeah. will see what we're seeing now, which is that Title X funding is being pulled, right? Because you can no longer offer, Title X funding is no longer allowed to be given to facilities that even talk about abortion services, right? Right. right. So what happens to our federal health care program under a restrictive administration? 
right, for women's healthcare services when it's the only way to get women healthcare? Does now all the women have to go to a private? So Medicare for all says that you can get private insurance for what the government doesn't provide. So are we saying that the minute that an administration is hostile to women and it's not provided under our federal program, all women have to go to private insurance to get reproductive healthcare access? Right. And the ones who need it the most are the ones that can't afford it. Right. So like the reason why I think that it is absolutely achievable to get Medicare uh, for all who want it or access to healthcare for anybody now is to say, if we start capturing those that are most vulnerable, build it intentionally, you know, create the programs, fund it, right? Understand the limitations. We can get access to all those Americans now, right? And in all fairness, not undocumented people, because at the end of the day, we know as emergency doctors, not having access to healthcare as an undocumented person is a burden on the system. And most of those people pay taxes, right? So we should make healthcare access available to everybody that lives in America, um, because that's the smartest economic policy, not just the one that feels most morally just. Exactly. I completely agree with that. No, that's okay. Um, (laughs) Preaching to the choir here. Um, All right. Number three, the last one is there needs to be more wellness initiatives for resident physicians. Uh, eh. Can I give an eh? Is that an appropriate answer? Yeah, that's appropriate. So I think wellness has wellness has been, has been created as a silo to say your life's going to suck. So we're going to give you some yoga classes. And what I don't want to see is continue to invest in wellness programs to compensate for a system that, that just, you know, destroys lives. That's not the way it works. Wellness initiatives need to be fundamentally structured to create a viable life for our residents and our trainees. So instead of investing in, you know, yoga and in like retreats, I'd rather see flexible scheduling and I'd rather see support for parental leave, right? So to me, wellness initiatives are investments in structural advances that make it easier to exist as a human also while being a resident. And so I will, I will allow the word, that's where the eh comes from. I will allow (laughs) wellness to be a, a term that's used, but only under the confines that our current system makes us unwell and creating structural changes in the system is what I consider wellness. Yeah, completely. All right. I like that answer. Okay. So another segment that I do as a part of the podcast, I do a recommendation or a favorite product book, whatever, something that you've really been loving lately that our listeners can benefit from. So you can go first and do the honors. So I will say that I listen to a lot of podcasts. um, And one of my favorite podcasts is called The Argument. It's by three New York Times opinion writers that each have kind of different opinions on the political spectrum. And they end every podcast with a recommendation. And so I've found actually some of my favorite TV shows from there. Uh, Two of its most recent uh, recommendations are a TV show actually called Years and Years, which Mm -hmm. was an HBO, BBC, uh, kind of a dystopian family drama, but it was, it's like Black Mirror meets like brothers and sisters. It's amazing. I've heard of it. And then Amazon has a new series called Modern Love, which is after the New York Times Modern Love series about like relationships in your life and, you know, loving. It's going to be about like a parent relationship or child relationship or your spouse or whatever. So I will say that my recommendations all come from my recommendation of the argument as a podcast recommendation and we'll leave it there. Okay. Sounds good. Um, mine for this week. So I've, I've had a little bit more time now that exams have ended and I've really gotten into spinning. So 
absolutely love spinning because it kind of bridges my two loves of music and exercise. So I like, you know, just getting on beat and it's very cathartic. So love spinning. I recommend it to like everybody. I usually answer that. So Soul Cycle is one of my favorite, like, uh, and my daughter has taken it up. So now her 12th birthday party is actually at Soul Cycle, uh, where she's going to bring her friends and do it with our favorite instructor. So our life is very much about the spin class as well. I know. I love it. It's, I, I think that in itself is a form of wellness because it's, it's something for your mind, something for your body. And yeah, I, my I whole theory it. on it is my body moves so fast. My mind can finally be clear. That's just the way yes. that I think about it. Yes. I love that. Okay. So that was the end of our segment. Now we're going to get into the meat of this podcast. Um, So really excited to have you on again. And can we just kind of get a quick background on you? What drove you to medicine and more specifically emergency medicine? Uh, So my mom was an ER nurse uh, when I was a kid and I always knew the emergency department was kind of the place I belonged. Uh, It made sense for my personality, for my energy. I always wanted to be a doctor. I thought medicine was so interesting and curious. And so I would say that I always wanted to be a doctor and actually always wanted to be an emergency medicine doctor, which is not that common because even as a specialty, like it was founded the year I was born. So it's not like many people went into medical school, even in the 90s or 2000s saying, I want to be an emergency medicine doctor, but I did. I had just like I said, it just, it made sense for me. And I've actually never looked back. A a lot of other areas of medicine I find fascinating and wonderful, but you know, I I never feel better. I always feel safe and comfortable in an emergency department, which sounds crazy, but true. Yeah. I think that's true for a lot of people. And and that's what what brings everyone to EM. Um, So was there ever any pushback from the parents or pushback from, you know, the people you grew up with, anything like that? So no, actually, like I said, I, I grew up in a culture that emergency medicine made sense. Um, I do yeah. think it's funny. My husband's not from a medical family at all. They're all like lawyers and finance people. And I don't think they understood that emergency medicine was a thing. And so even though in my family, being an ER doctor like was like rite of passage, they kept asking me what kind of doctor I'm going to be after I finish working in the emergency department. You know, mm-hmm. am I going to be a dermatologist or an orthopedist? And they didn't even understand that an optometrist isn't even a doctor. Of, um, and so I think that it was very interesting to, to instruct them that actually the entire career could be rooted in the emergency department. What's ironic is it has made me the most important like text friend of anybody I have in my life. So everybody yeah. just kind of like, cause you, we know enough about anything to get a conversation started. Yeah, completely. I, I even face that as a medical student, people mm-hmm. texting me and I'm like, right. I, I don't know anything yet. <laughs> Um, so yeah, definitely. Um, can you talk about maybe some struggles that you faced as a woman in this field? Because I'm really interested in emergency medicine and I, I think it's one of those fields that's relatively accepting of, of women. It's not, you know, you're not an ortho bro and you feel, or you're not a, a, a surgical specialty where, you know, there is that male dominance. Right. So I think that, um, you know, the older I get, the wiser I get, the more I realize I have no idea. And I think that uh, emergency medicine is an amazing field. It's young, it's innovative. And so in that way, um, we have an enormous number of, of, of incredible women who are so supportive of each other. Our network within our field of and we've coined this term like our raft, you know, of otters and all this kind of other analogies we use, but our network is the best of any other specialty. Like there is no specialty in medicine that is as supportive of each other in a broad-based way. The reason that Feminem started as an emergency medicine entity was not an accident. Um, We have more allies and partners um, in our field than I think any other specialty, but it is still a really hard 
you know, life for people. Yeah. And it's not just women, but it is just women, right? So it's not exclusive to women, but the issues that face that women face as gendered roles exist in their lives do come down in emergency medicine. So our schedule is the hardest part about our job. And so we spend a lot of time dealing with the flexibility and the inevitability of life. And, you know, when you're pregnant and nursing and all those kind of very gendered needs, those are issues that face women. And in emergency medicine, you know, those are hard issues to face, working overnights regularly, weekends. The other part of it is, is that, you know, as in my life, as I became a parent and a wife and had became a more essential, you know, character in my own family, the nights and the weekends, they wear on you. And so you have to figure out a way to ebb and flow, but it isn't fair to say that everybody who's not married with children, you don't, you have to work all the nights and weekends because I have kids. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out how does that work, right? How do you make all that exist? And I think that that's what we're working on. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. Yeah. To what extent do you feel like, you know, the modern woman can definitely have it all in terms of kids, a career in medicine, um, yeah. Do you agree with that? Or? No, but I don't, it's not that I don't agree with the concepts. It's a, I, the, the way that it's phrased um, becomes a really restrictive, like it's a box, right? It's like, can you put yourself in the box by which you can be a great mom, a great wife, a great partner, a great friend, a great dog owner, whatever it is. And also the world's greatest employee that is completely there for your job. And it's inhuman. It was inhuman for anybody. The, the thing is this, is that our structures of success in professional life were created when people were not present in their home life, right? And so the idea that when women entered the workplace, they could be both present in their home life and be the same kind of employee and professional that they were historically is absurd, actually. What's interesting now, and this is where the have it all conversation comes in, is, and this is a generational shift, right? It's my friends, so the mid 40s, I'm 42, the men who are between 30 and 50 who don't really want the same life that their dads had right? Or they realize that there's a way where we can have equity across the board. It's the opportunities for men to be present parents or for everybody to be able to have a life outside of your job, even if you don't have children, right? So it's this idea that we can insert our humanity back into healthcare as professionals and then create a new normal for everybody that will actually get women to have quote unquote it all. Because if we don't restructure the landscape for everybody, women will always be at the bottom of the pile because at the end of the day, when nobody else cares about anything, we're still the ones getting the job done. Right. right? Right. And it, 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 you know, our family forgets, our partners forget, even my husband yesterday, he looks at me, he goes, wow, you really do everything, don't you? And I'm like, (laughs) the jobs are available for you if you're ready to do them. And it's not that he's not doing them. It's that he forgets all the things he doesn't see sometimes. Yeah. And that's, part of restructuring our, our, our foundational support for everybody. Yeah. So I, I do want to get into talking about Femin-EM because mm-hmm. am I saying that correctly? You can or say it's it- either Femin-EM or Femin-EM. I had okay. always said Femin-EM, but it's exactly the same and it's totally okay. fine. Okay. Okay. So I want to just ask you, like, how, how did you think about, you know, creating this and what is its like main purpose? So there uh, are, have been all these books about women's anger. Right. And, you know, rage becomes her and, you know, good and mad. And when you get women get frustrated, sometimes they become super effective. Right. I was frustrated at a point where I had seen a better way, mostly around for me, it was the structure of being a professional and also having children. That was where my breaking point came. And I realized that the historical structures of medicine were not going to get me there. Right. So there are times by which you have to go 
outside of the normal system, but still work within the system that you have. And there are other times you have to work within the system exclusively. Feminem started because I got angry and I was effective. And so I said, if I could coordinate all the women and the allies in my field together in a place that wasn't owned by anybody but me, could I then create conversations and support around the needs of gender equity in, in, in medicine, in, in emergency medicine? And that's basically what I did. Created a website, said, if you have any articles, we're going to share our stories. It was originally supposed to be a way for there to be historical memory on the issues facing women and the solutions that they had had. So if you had figured, figured out how to do maternity leave, or if you had figured out how to get promoted, or dealt with postpartum depression, or dealt with the, pay, the gendered pay gap, like then those articles would exist somewhere that could be searched, right? Yeah. That was, it was that simple, like basically a database. And then as it evolved, we realized that we were starting to solve the problems that we were being that were being addressed, like you know, being brought up. So the speakers bureau is a good example because we can't, we realized that you know, if there were not enough women speakers in medicine, specifically emergency medicine, if we could create a speakers bureau that was an easily searchable and connectable way for conference organizers to find and recruit women speakers, they would run out of reasons because people don't want, well, I shouldn't say that. A lot of people don't want to partake in biased activities. They're not interested in excluding. It's certainly not... Mm, certainly not on the granular level, um, excluding women or people of color. They just don't know enough people or they don't think they're qualified or their biases overtake them. And if you, if you understand those biases and you work around them, sometimes you can get to good equitable solutions. Yeah. And I think that even just amplifying the voices in the field of emergency medicine, like, which is something that your organization is definitely doing. I think that that makes it easier for people who, hold, who are holding conferences to take note of that and make it easier for them to find people to speak that are women of color or minorities. Yeah. I mean, we, we have an honor section where we just basically repost people's awards. We don't give awards. We just repost them. Nice. And it's because if you amplify your own award, you're, you get bias, right? This like ability bias and you think people think you're a self-promoter. If I do it, everyone's like, oh my God, you want an award? That's wonderful. So I think that that's exactly what... Um, what we want to do is we want to neutralize the biases people face while also restructuring the, the, the landscape that they face them in. Yeah. Um, anything exciting coming up with the organization that we can like look forward to? Is, are there any more initiatives or? Yeah. So um, there's actually a lot. I, I, I forget how much we do sometimes. So we actually just published a, a women in medicine curriculum on the website, which is basically like a resource curriculum for different issues. We're in the process of, of, of putting out different sections. So we had a sponsorship and mentorship section that came out recently. Uh, our conference is amazing. We just finished our conference in 2019. So we're planning the 2020 conference in Chicago. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we're actually starting to do regional conferences in partnership with other groups. So there's a group at, um, in Boston doing it uh, at Northeast Conference. Uh, that will be a regional one-day event, mostly centered on residents and fellows. So that's exciting. Um, I mean, you know, it's a never-ending, seems like a tornado of experience and events. And, you know, the other thing we're doing is we have a, a column in one of our major medical magazines on the equity policies. It's called the Equity Equation. And mm-hmm. it's about equity policies for women um, or for people in healthcare. And we published a policy on supporting pregnant attendings and residents. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then it was used to adopt a pregnancy policy and return to work policy for a residency already in Indiana. So it does feel like we're changing things. Yeah. So 
just looking towards the future, do you see things changing towards that? You know, we want to affect change in the culture, right? Make things better for men and women. Um, do you see that happening in your lifetime, my lifetime? Do you see us yeah. progressing towards that change pretty rapidly? Yeah, I do. I do. I think that um, we are, we've made already, I, I actually think, um, astronomical changes, certainly around we, we're, we're lifting the floor, right? So you can't yeah. always bust the ceiling, but you can lift the floor. And I think that like, if you go back to the speakers bureau, right, it is unacceptable in emergency medicine right now across the board to ever have a mantle, right? You have a mantle in an emergency medicine conference and people yeah. like you didn't even try. Okay. That's lifting the floor, right? It's not yeah. getting all those women promoted. It's not getting them all to be keynotes, but it's saying this is our bare minimum. Well, if we right. lift the floor, eventually we're going to get to a new normal that feels more equitable than we've been before. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, so I actually did have a chance to look you up on YouTube and I oh. found a little interview that you did with, um, I forget exactly who it was, but you were talking about Time's Up Healthcare okay. and your involvement with that. So can you kind of talk about what your involvement was specifically with that and why you feel so passionately about that. Yeah. So uh, the interview I think you're talking about was done at the launch of Times of Healthcare at the New York Academy of Medicine. Yes, and it, that's what it was. It was. You should always know when somebody Googles you, you should know what they're going to find. <laughs> it's a good lesson. So um, we launched in March of uh, 2019. Times of Healthcare is a vertical initiative of the Times Up organization, Times Up Now. Uh, in an attempt to make all of healthcare a safe, equitable, and dignified workplace for women, for women of all kinds. Uh, we started it, you know, it's a big undertaking, right? The, the healthcare workplace is huge. And more importantly, there are so many layers of uh, worker in the healthcare workplace. Um, there are so many layers of inequity. There are so many intersections of inequity. And so, you know, a couple of women physicians actually started it. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, I mean, I mean, that literally was like the first two people were doctors, but mostly it's about the fact that we have more free time yeah. than let's say hourly workers who are working on, you know, in home health aides or nursing aides and stuff like that. And so we're, we we're, are able to do the work in a way that other people can't because they're working more hours for less pay. Um, and the goal of times of healthcare is, really as broad as that is to like create safe, equitable, and dignified work for all women of all kinds in healthcare. Um, there are a lot of ways that we're trying to do that. Some is partnering with institutions as signatories to have them commit to principles um, about creating safe, equitable, and dignified workplaces. Uh, some is about empowering workers um, on the ground to have a place to go to if they have, uh, they need, let's say, help with a legal defense case and they need to go to the Time's mm -hmm. Up Legal Defense Fund. Some is creating initiatives, uh, maybe around uh, journal editors to have editorial boards that are representative of um, the field so that they have yeah. uh, women on their boards or creating a standard of care for conference organizers who uh, we know conferences, medical conferences have been uh, bastions of bad behavior because you mix hotels and alcohol and it doesn't yeah. help. Uh, when people are away from their homes. And so we have seen numerous stories of women in healthcare, women professionals um, having interactions at conferences that are unacceptable. We've seen slides from conferences that are unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And so creating a new conference narrative around um, safety and equity, even in those spaces, I think is another initiative that we're excited about. Yeah, I love that. And what do you think is, I guess, the role of men in this space? I realize, you know, they, we all know they should be allies, but how do we really get that to happen? How do we get them on board? 
So, uh, you know, this is uh, my, a fundamental tenet of how I believe equity work has to exist, which is that uh, the minority group or the oppressed group can never be the agent of change fully. Um, it can be the voice of, of need or they can be a reflected group, but without a, a true allyship, and I call it champions of change or agents of change, um, it never happens, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't change this. And, and the minute that, that the men in charge decide they don't want to help us until we're done, right? This is not going to happen. Um, and so the good thing about what we've done is at Feminem and even at Time's Up is allowed spaces for allies to be advocates of change with us. So um, I fundamentally believe that the only way this works is if we're in it together. And that mm -hmm. I also believe that although you have to call bad behavior out and you have to hold people accountable for their actions, you always have to leave the door open for redemption and progress. And so for me, that means that if somebody who has um, maybe not been an ally in the past or even, you know, made fun of the work that we've done, you know, you'd be surprised if you go on Twitter, the trolls are vicious and they don't, I mean, the gender pay gap is a good example, right? Everyone's N of one of the women they know that makes more than them means that there is no gap because they make less. And that's obviously not true. You mm -hmm. have to keep the door open for conversation because I know a lot of people who have been um, in the privileged group and this goes for race and gender and all kinds of other privileges that have an epiphany and they realize mm -hmm. they've contributed to the oppression of another group and they're ready to come and do the work. And so my practice is generally to let them in when they're ready because mm -hmm. I think that without, without the largest intersectional team, including men and gender equity, we're never going to get anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, completely. So what can, what can women do to, I guess, advocate for themselves, especially in a field like medicine before you get to becoming a doctor? What can they do as medical students, as people in undergrad, or even in a different major like business? Because a lot of people listen to the podcast that aren't even in medicine. So, so I think that self-advocacy is important. But I also think that having the right champions and sponsors is actually probably more important. So, you know, when you're not in a position of power, medical students, college students, business school students, you're not in a position of power towards the change that you're looking forward to. You certainly are in a position of influence for those behind you, right? So remembering that everybody, you have to look 360 at your positions of influence. And you know that if you're a medical student, there are college students looking to you as an example. And if you're a college student, there are high school students looking to you as an example. So I think we always look around and say, how can we affect change for those behind us? Um, mm -hmm. Having that said, if you're in a position as a, as a non-influential person and you want to advocate for yourself, one of the best ways to do that is to get somebody to advocate for you and with you. Mm -hmm. And you'll be surprised, the larger your network is of champions and sponsors, the easier it's going to be to get what you need done and the less frustrating it's going to be. So I think mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not a great strategy to always bust into the dean or CEO's office and say, I am being, you know, structurally oppressed because I am a young woman of color and I am here to say that this system <laughs> is wrong and I want you to fix it. Right. And I'm not saying yeah. that that isn't all true. I'm just saying like, you can see it, you yeah. know, that it's like, and even if the dean or CEO is a woman of color, they're still not going to receive that well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so it comes into knowing how to make structural changes and that you have to sometimes be loud and proud and sometimes be smart and sleek about it. But at the end of the day, the goal is to create longstanding structural changes that are not just about us, but are about the system. Yeah. 
completely agreed. <laughs> I like that. I, I am guilty of being that person sometimes. I am too. Don't, don't get me wrong. None of this comes without a life experience of knowing what I've done wrong. So I can definitely bust it into a room where I didn't belong just by virtue of anybody ever inviting me in there and said, this is why you've pissed me off. This is where, how you need to change. And realize now that that was a completely ineffective strategy. All it did was frustrate me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm slowly realizing as I grow up, you have to package it in a box that people are ready to receive. <laughs> we actually, we call it, it's like, it's called inside out change, right? So it has to do with changing things from the inside and also from the outside. And yeah. if you don't do inside out change, uh, especially with large organizations, when it, that's the only way you move a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Um, so I do want to get to talking about the next presidential election because you have topic. been, yeah, you've been very vocal on Twitter. That's actually how I I have come to know you. And then I, I watched you speak at a, a Baylor event as well. Um, but can you kind of explain your involvement with the presidential election? Um, who, I guess, is your, your candidate of choice? We can talk about that a little bit so, more. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, 2016 was a wake up call for me regardless, right? Yeah. I took for granted that smart people were able to do smart things, but I also took for granted that the system worked. Yeah. And I think that, um, I took my daughter to vote and I said, we're going to do this. This is going to be amazing. And it's not that I, it's not even about at that point ideology as much as it was, that was where we were going. It was what made sense. And more importantly to me, the, the choice was so stark. Like even if I had grown up a Republican and I had grown up believing in conservative principles, this particular person on that side was completely unqualified for the job, in my opinion. And so nobody in my right mind would ever choose an unqualified person versus a qualified person. That's yeah. just not how job selection works. Yeah. And I was floored, yeah. devastated. Like, I mean, we all went through a period of mourning and it was because the process had failed. It wasn't as much, I mean, I was sad that my person lost because it didn't make any sense to me, but like, it didn't, it was, it was like the wrong decision, right? On so many levels yeah. from like qualifications and like capability and sanity, right? And so yeah. that was my wake up call. So I started doing a, a few things in my house that were kind of uh, aggregators. So bringing in people to do phone banking for special elections and helping to kind of create small changes on the seats that have been vacated. And we were able to do a phone bank for Doug Jones in Alabama mm -hmm. and he won. And I was like, wait a minute. We can have a Democratic senator in Alabama who believes in choice. That's important, right? And then we did it for another uh, a congressional seat in Pennsylvania. And so I started realizing that, that even my voice mattered, but that getting active was important. Yeah. In the 2020 election, so the candidates started declaring themselves for 2020. And hell or high water, I was going to support a woman right? This is who I am. This is my brand. Um, I was, and I mean that from like my soul, right? I, yeah, I no, I relate to that like, completely. Right. Yeah. And I, and by virtue of, of a lot of convenient circumstances, mostly having to do with the fact that I have friends that have worked in areas of politics and whatever, my friend called me and said, would you watch this CNN town hall? It's on TV, right? Mm -hmm. I, this guy, his name is Pete, Mayor Pete, you know, you can't even say his name. He's going to be on this town hall and just watch him because he's the future of the party. That's what he's just, she just said, just pay attention. And I watch him on the town hall. It's March. He's not even declared as a candidate. And I was like, oh my God, I like, I, the way he spoke just spoke to me. Like, and everybody has that for themselves. I don't yeah, pretend yeah. that the way he speaks, but I was like listening to this equity and this like conversation. And I was like, back to why I think men need to part of feminine. I was like, this is a person that has fundamental beliefs that are mine, that are similar to mine. I want to help him be on the stage. Yeah. That was all I said. 
we wound up um, for early on before he was declared or saying, let's see if we can introduce him to Heart Community and decided we were going to host a fundraiser for him at our house, which is very much what candidates do. And we knew him enough and we were able to meet him early on. And why is that important? Because it, it was still when the like field was being defined, like there were so many candidates and this was never mm -hmm. about, you know, but it was about seeing somebody take live questions on disability access and on gender equity and on racial justice. I had never seen that like not practiced. He didn't know the questions. And these were not questions that I had expected somebody to answer. So, so agilely, you know, new to the scene and I mm -hmm. witnessed it firsthand. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to try to keep this conversation going for as long as possible. Yeah. And so I was able to use my platform. I am able to use my platform and I hope my voice um, and, you know, my connections to, to continue to highlight the idea that equity comes in all kinds of forms and that we want to have candidates on the stage that will advocate for equity and justice for all people. And mm -hmm. it is important that our leaders represent us and representation is important everywhere. Um, with the presidency for me, it's one job. And it's a very important job, but the, a president who appoints an equitable cabinet and appoints policies and, you know, promotes policies that are about, you know, not just racial justice as it results to criminal justice reform, but mm -hmm. racial justice as it, it involves, you know, investment in black entrepreneurship or health equity for black women, or, you know, destigmatizing what it is to be a black man who has HIV. Like these are mm -hmm. really important principles that are important. And we see a few candidates talking about them and they aren't all members of that of that community that they talk about so I guess the way that I'll kind of tie up this thing this whole thing is I fundamentally believe that in this moment in American history we are going to find ourselves at a crisis the day after Donald Trump leaves for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he has to leave which is another whole conversation <laughs> um, but when he's gone I have the the visceral divisions have to be healed I personally believe that, that this person that I support, you know, can heal the country and also guide us with principles and practices of policy that will get us to equity and justice. And so to me, that makes him the, the best whole candidate. And I'm not apologizing for feeling that strongly about a person that really completely looks totally different than I had expected yeah. I would support from the very beginning. Yeah. So I, I do have to ask because it is your brand. Right. Are there any other women that are in the race right now that you think would be good candidates or? Yeah. So I have to be completely honest. Like I, of course, will support, I will not just support, I will raise money. I will campaign. I will do anything for the yeah. candidate that ultimately gets nominated. And yeah. I have gone to fundraisers for more than him. First, for the first fundraiser I went to was for Kamala Harris and I met her yeah. and she's wonderful. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has been a hero, was actually my husband's law school professor when he was in law school. Yeah. So I will say that I've, obviously if, I, if it ended up being those three candidates for me, I would be thrilled. Okay. Okay. Um, and okay. to be completely honest, um, the reason I highlight, you know, Pete against the, and instead of those two women, I would say is very much about policy actually, you know, and about this moment in time, which is to me interesting because any of them will be a great president and any of them would beat Donald Trump, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that if I'm lucky enough to choose the nuanced decision and healthcare is a good example, right? I fundamentally believe that his healthcare policy of building a public option that, is, uh, that proves itself before we cancel private insurance, not only is a better 
practical answer and better policy, mm -hmm. but it, it allows this healing around the idea of insurance and of healthcare that people will walk over to a public option away from private insurance. Mm -hmm. If people come here on their own, they're not going to try to dismantle it the minute that we lose power, right? Like yeah. you have to think about this as an agent of change. And it's like all of our gender equity principles. If I force conferences and I mandate 50% women on the stage or else I'm going to like blame you, right? Then I'm going to get backlash the minute that I don't have the power anymore to do that. But mm -hmm. if I show them these candidates and I say, here's our speakers bureau, recruit these women. I have a coaching program. They put them on their stage and they're awesome. That's sustainable change. Yeah. Like, so yeah. to me, this is a fundamental difference in governance. And at the end of the day, we're hiring somebody for the job to actually do the job, not just to win the game. Right. I agree. And I guess kind of slightly unrelated, but uh, to what extent do you think that the U.S. is ready for a female president? I think they're ready 100%. Okay. I think that um, okay. I think that there is a lot of misogyny and a lot of sexism everywhere. I also think that um, that 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 if we had a parliamentary system, we would have had a woman president a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Okay, the electoral system is a lot more sexist than, than the American people are. Okay, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so I think that if we let's say that a candidate won who wanted to facilitate getting the first female president and uh, immediately stepped down the day after he won, right? And then we had mm -hmm. a female, we would have a great governance, right? I think <laughs> the American people are absolutely ready for a female president because at the end of the day, especially after this president, the American people are ready for somebody just to do the job well, right? right. What package that comes in is not going to be as important to people as the fact that it is going to be done with, 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 honesty, with humility, with intention, with intellect, um, with respect, right? Those are all qualities I think the yeah. American people want in their president before they care what package the job is being done in. Yeah, I agree. And what do you think is going to be the most important issue in this election? Do you think it's healthcare or do you mm -hmm. think there's other things? No. That are I think that, you know, that? if you looked at the top three issues, I think to voters, it would be kind of the climate, you know, healthcare and yeah. national security kind of writ large, right. um, especially as the world is what's happening right now. Um, and I think you could even say election security in the national security bucket. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that if you ask people on the daily basis, what's the thing that affects their lives the most? I mean, besides the economy, which I think is how you pay for your healthcare, how you decide how to be active in climate. Um, yeah. I think that the healthcare is going to, it, it is so broken and it is so important and it affects so many people's lives uh, on the daily basis that I think it's the most important issue facing America this year. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Um, so I do want to shift focuses just a little bit. We were watching a great video that you showed me right before we started recording. Um, so I want to talk about a personal experience that I had that relates to that as well as get your opinion on a few things. So I have had many instances of being misidentified since I've started um, medical school. Um, you know, people usually think that I'm a nurse when I'm walking through the hospital, which as a medical student is great because nurses are awesome. And like, right. I'm glad to be mistaken for a nurse um, and think that I know that much. Um, but this happened to me twice in one week, uh, a few weeks ago. And I was explaining, you know, I'm in medical school to random people, like a hairdresser or like just random people. And they were like, oh, what nursing school do you go to? I was like, oh, no, no, no. I go to medical school. Like it's where you go to become a doctor, blah, blah, blah. And they said, um, 
two, two different people both said, oh, so you're going to become a pediatrician. Right. <laughs> and so, which is great, right? Like that's actually like, you know, something that's on my list, but it's just the, the leaps that people go through in their heads to arrive at that conclusion, just based on how I look. Um, and so that's kind of what the video was about as well. You know, being misidentified. Uh, could you actually explain the video that we just, so the video, experience? yeah. So I, I get to do some cool things. And so uh, I, a friend of mine was actually did a Q and a with Pete on stage at a big fundraiser. And she's an extraordinary woman physician. She's a black woman from the South Bronx. And she was talking about the bias that she faces as a black woman in medicine, as a kind of overlay to Pete, um, launching his, uh, his women's health policy or his, I say actually his, right. his, his women's agenda, which included a women's health policy. And so, uh, the video that they created after the video from this event two weeks ago was about her doing the Q&A on stage and him answering a question about uh, the pay gap and stuff like that. What I will say about um, what happened to you and, and a lot of, not what happened to her because bias is bias, but then there's yeah. this other thing called benevolent sexism, which is exactly what you're describing. Right. which is this kind of somebody's coming to it from a really good place. Like they think you'd be a really good pediatrician because yeah. they think that children need really nice, cute, young, nurturing. female, nurturing <laughs> doctors. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so they think that like they're trying to give you a suggestion that conforms with their biases. That's not supposed to oppress you. Right. It's not supposed to remove exactly, opportunities yeah. from you. So benevolent yeah. sexism is a really big thing because it's almost the hardest like form of bias to address because the person's not coming from a bad place. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of these uh, questions about, am I a nurse? So this is one we talk about a lot in intersectionality because we realize that, you know, the story Arabia tells when the person walked past her and was looking for Dr. Molette and then went to a white man and said, are you Dr. Molette? And he's like, no, you just walked past her. You know, black women in medicine don't even get necessarily asked if they're a nurse. A lot of times right. somebody will say, here's my lunch tray, right? And so a lot of times when we reflect, as, as I reflect as a white woman on saying, somebody thinks I'm a nurse, you realize that black nurses may not be even, mis, you know, they be mis, misidentified as a, not even a nurse. So, right. you know, there's all these layers of bias and how it plays into our communication, not just with the people that are misidentifying us, but also with each other, right? Yeah. And so we need to remember that, again, that's another position of privilege right? The idea that even when somebody misidentifies me, it's still not a, a misidentification that even that it still accepts that I'm a professional there to do a job, right? Right. Yeah, and completely. so, but I will say that, you know, your hairdresser saying you're going to be a pediatrician, <laughs> there's a lot of that out there. I think that the idea of women doctors is not novel anymore, but I do think that there's still a lot of cultural lift that occurs in the idea of the burden that women face when they tell people they want to be a doctor. So another thing I, I'm surprised you haven't heard, or maybe you have in your own family, is some family member saying, oh, well, no man will marry you. Or, you know, mm -hmm. I'm really sorry about the children who aren't going to see their mom, right? Mm -hmm. These are converse, and I, I don't know, have you ever had that conversation in your oh, family? Oh, yeah. Right. And not so much family, but with friends and yeah. men my age. Right. Um, definitely. So there's always these articles about, uh, you know, men don't want to marry a woman that makes more money than them or have mm -hmm. whatever. Now, my husband who happens to make more money than me and has advanced degrees as well is always like, what fool wouldn't want to marry a man, a woman that made more money than them? Like, yeah, come on. Exactly. He's trying to get me to earn more, you know? It's like, <laughs> I think that there's a level of insecurity that happens. And I think that this affects to a culture of, you know, a hierarchical culture that, uh, that does punish women for being aspirational or being, you know, kind of 
having ambition. Um, but I think as we reframe that culture and we allow men to reframe their expectations too, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of that is a reflection of mandating that men are breadwinners, right? Mm-hmm. So if I have to be the breadwinner and that's my identity, then that immediately gets threatened if you make more money than me, yeah. right? But if I'm taught that I need to have a job that pays the bill and you make more money, hell, I can go to golfing more because you're paying <laughs> the bills, right? So that's I true. think- that there comes into that kind of restructuring of identities that will help us get away from these biases and actually, ironically, away from the benevolent sexism you're talking about. Yeah, where do you where do you think that culture change can can occur, and what do we need to get there? Because I think one way for me personally is to add paternity leave. You know, 100%. I think that would be a great a great addition. Yeah, so that actually, so it's generational, and I think that it's going to take that change is going to take the next generation of of children being raised by us. So, um, my boys have t-shirts that say feminist on them. I certainly didn't, I didn't have a t-shirt that said feminist when I was a kid. Right. Um, and I think that parental leave is a perfect example, right? So the policy that I was talking about before that Indiana university just put out, uh, which Mm -hmm. was twofold and it was a result of, of some work that we had done publicly. One was no nights in the third trimester or the first trimester based on the data on pregnancy support. Mm -hmm. And the second was return to work policies for new parents, regardless of gender. And the reason why this is so fundamentally important, aside from paternity leave and maternity leave, is first of all, I actually want to separate out um, birth leave from parental leave. Mm-hmm. So I think that you should get some credit for giving birth and other credit for have, for being a parent. I don't mm-hmm. think that we should conflate uh, the birth with the parenting because a large percentage, and I'd argue a majority almost, like you think that mm-hmm. it's even or, but then there's that extra bat, the extra number of the parents that adopt, right? So there's mm-hmm. a majority of people don't actually give birth who become parents, right? Because mm-hmm. it's 50-50 in most relationships, but then yeah. there's always oh, that third true. parent, yeah. right? So right. majority of people don't give birth. Um, so it would be better to say, here's your child's birth leave and here's your parental leave. And you can combine them if you are actually the person who gave birth and is the parent. Right. The reason why that's so fundamentally important is it reduces the stigma on taking leave if you didn't give birth. Right. right. And if we take leave, even though we didn't give birth, we become involved parents. The data shows if you're home for three weeks with your child, even if you're not the birth parent, you are more engaged in raising them. If you're more engaged in raising them, then you internalize the work of raising children in a way that doesn't leave women alone. Mm-hmm. If you do that, then this benevolent sexism doesn't creep up and up and up when you're looking at your peers, right? Right. So mm-hmm. that's how you create long-term systemic changes. Yeah. But it takes work. Yeah, that's true. And I think it takes time too, yeah. which I'm like, I'm like, let's just get to it. Like, let's right. just make it happen now. <laughs> Yeah. You got to create small wins when you're trying to create big change. So <laughs> yeah. some of it is just watching a new policy get put out and feeling that's a victory too. Right. Yeah. Um, and there are small wins every day and you just have to call them out, recognize them and amplify them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been having a few different conversations as we're starting to kind of wrap up. I've been having some conversations with other med students, my colleagues, and I think a common theme that runs through all of us is we want to affect big change, like we were talking about. And, you know, we're going to be doctors, we're going to be treating patients on a day-to-day basis, but what are we going to do after that? How do we have a wider reach and how do we affect greater change? Um, So if there's a medical student listening to this um, that wants to do that with their life, what advice do you have for them 
to do all of this, but also, you know, make time for the studying and make time for the, right. all of that. How do we balance that out? So I had this, this was asked of me, I think like yesterday, the day before, by this extraordinary resident who is doing big work in spaces. And she was asking me how to be involved in feminine while being an intern. And I said, listen, like, there are, there's time for all of this. We're not fixing the world tomorrow. Believe me, there, are pro- there will be problems to fix when you wake up. Life is yeah. long. You wish, you hope, if you're lucky. Um, being a medical student is important. And yeah. almost everything I do, I couldn't do if I didn't do that first. Now, social media didn't exist when I was a medical student, and I don't know what would have happened if it did, because I probably would have not completed, I mean, I would have completed medical school, but it would have been a lot harder. Um, yeah. And so I will say that it's really important to be active and engaged, but it is more important to become a doctor because our voices, our leverage in these spaces exists because of our knowledge and our influence. And so I think that if you're a medical student and you're getting distracted by um, all this other stuff, check it and put it aside. Um, because you have to graduate from medical school. You have to do a residency. You have to graduate from residency. You have to get a job. Yeah. Besides the fact that you guys are going into ridiculous debt to do this. Yeah. Okay. It is a super exciting suspension of belief to think that you're not taking on massive debt to become a doctor and somehow that's going to be your hobby. Right. Yeah. It is your yeah. job. So I would say that as much as I love working with inspired and excited medical students all over the place, um, you must recognize that this is your job is to be a medical student and the work will be here for you when you are done. Yeah, you're right. It's never going to get done. Never. We have <laughs> a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Okay. I'm, I hope the friends that I've been talking to will listen to this part. <laughs> I hope so too. Um, yeah. Um, so last thing, most of my audience is pre-meds and mm-hmm. you know, people in high school that are aiming for medical school. Um, so do you have any specific advice for them? It's hard. I mean, not the process of becoming a doctor. That is hard. Getting in is hard, right? Yeah. And I think that we are um, really, we have, we have like revisionist memories sometimes when we become doctors that we think that it was so easy and we forget how hard it was. Um, yeah. I remember when I was becoming, a, when I was going into medical school and applying, um, I got, so I got waitlisted at the only medical school I ultimately got into. I got into two medical schools. One was actually abroad and one was here. And um, I was like, if I don't get in the first time, I'm not doing this. Like if it's not meant to be, and I had this stand of like, this is who I meant to be. If they don't want me, I don't want them. And you know, whatever. Yeah. Everybody gets rejected. Actually more people don't get in the first time than do. And so I think that we need to realize that it's a long journey. I also think that it's okay to take time off. I mean, I am a much better doctor now than I was when I started. And then some of it's because I have more knowledge and some of it's that I have more experience. So I think that if you have anything that you want to do between becoming a doctor and, and, and not, I think that's okay too. Um, yeah. there's, it's good to get involved in things. Um, one of my favorite stories actually is I was in Iowa actually, um, mm-hmm. which my, I took my daughter to Iowa because again, now that I do all this stuff, I get to show her a life that I didn't have growing up. And like, when you go to Iowa, you see people who's, like these people, like it is their job to pay attention to politics. They listen to every candidate. They are the most informed voters. It is a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. And I got to Iowa 
And I realized all these organizers that were working for all these different campaigns had suspended their life for a year, taken a year off of medical school, residency, or law school, or their jobs, and they'd moved to Iowa because they believe in this one candidate. They're going to canvas for them. They're going to knock on doors. They're regional organizers. They're going to have all these town halls. And I was like, that is totally something I should have done, you know? And it doesn't have to be being a regional organizer. It can be any other kind of national, like, you know, service project, or it can be going abroad for a year and just like living in another culture. But I do think that life experience does make you a better doctor because it makes you a better person. Um, And I think that's something we're missing, I think, because everyone's so afraid of um, not getting in so fast and Mm -hmm. doing it right away because it's a long journey. Right. Right. And it makes you a better applicant too, just to add to people who are overly concerned about getting in. So totally. Yeah. So I think this is a good place to wrap up. Um, thank you for all of your advice. I think people are going to love that at the end. I hope so. I mean, I, yeah, I tell my daughter all this advice. She thinks I'm annoying. So maybe there's an audience out there that actually <laughs> wants it. <laughs> How old is your daughter, by the way? Oh God, she's turning 12 next week when she has her soul cycle birthday class. Yes. I think it's 16 when daughters are like, hmm, maybe my mom was right all along. <laughs> you know, she goes back and forth. I mean, you know, where it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cool things that we do that I think are access to the way that I am. And then there's other times she's like, are you ever not on your phone? Are you ever not going to, I travel <laughs> a lot. Cause like I go give conferences and lectures and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think that there's a plus and a minus, but I hope that she thinks that I'm a good example for other young women. Um, yeah. growing up. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. And I'm so glad to have you on. Thank you so much for like, I don't know. This was a lot of fun. You have great questions. Yeah. You're very good at this. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I, I've been doing it for a little while, not too uh, long. <laughs> I do this a lot. And I will say that you have really good questions. And more importantly, it's nice to have a conversation where I feel like I can bring all the things that I do. Right. So time's yeah. up and feminine and then my the soul cycle per, and my soul cycle and my personal <laughs> politicking, which is not related to my work at either time's up or feminine, I must say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like, I like hearing about it. I think people want to get a good picture of what it's like to be a real functioning doctor and, you know, doing other things outside of it too. Thank you. It was a great time. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I think I'll go ahead and put in a quick plug for the podcast Instagram. It is brown girl, white coat pod, all one word on Instagram. And you can also follow my personal Instagram if you just, you know, can't get enough of me. My name is at Cybear on there, S-A-I-E-B-E-A-R. And I'll have everything linked in the show notes as well as a little link to Feminium and everything that Dr. Cass is doing over there if you're interested in getting more involved with it. So quick plug for that and let me know what else you'd like to hear. I have so many interesting guests planned to come on the show really, really soon. And I am staying pretty consistent with my episodes despite starting clinics in barely any time, literally almost two months. So wish me luck and stay in touch with me on my socials. I respond to every single DM I get. So if you have questions, you want me to read something, look over something, you need some big sisterly advice, I got you. Um, Hit me up on Instagram. And big thanks to Dr. Cass for featuring on this episode. Thank you for tuning in and making this podcast a part of your day wherever you are. Thank you.